Uh, this morning we are talking about eschatology. We've been talking about that, uh, or we will be talking about that all semester. Uh, eschatology is the study uh, or the doctrine of the eschatos. What does eschatos mean? It means final or end or last. And so eschatology is dealing with the end times, the last things, the last days. And so last week we did an introduction uh, to that. And then over the semester we're going to be talking about all the different controversial uh, things that uh, you might wonder about eschatology. Is uh, uh, Vladimir Putin the, the, the beast or something like that? All of these sorts of things that we will be dealing with. What's the millennium? What's the tribulation? What's the rapture? Uh, and, uh, and all the different misconceptions of those sorts of things. And so we're going to be dealing with all of these controversial things. But first, uh, we want to kind of lay a foundation. And so we did that with the introduction last week where we talked about some of the things that you need to know as we're going into eschatology, dif- different ways to interpret eschatology. And, uh, and then this week what we want to do is, uh, is really talk about Old Testament theology uh, in particular, Old Testament eschatology. Before we get to New Testament eschatology and uh, and so forth, we're going to kind of <coughs> excuse me, lay a foundation over the next two weeks. This week, as we look at eschatology within the context of the Old Testament, and then next week, as we look at eschatology within the context of what we call intertestamental uh, literature. And so, intertestamental literature. Uh, has to do with literature that was written by the Jews in between the two testaments. So in between the close of the Old Testament, the opening of the New Testament, there is about 400 and so uh, years, and Jews were writing various things. And so uh, this is uh, helpful for us to understand uh, kind of how uh, early Jews thought, although it's not canonical. And so that's what we will spend our time uh, with uh, next week. But this week we're talking about Uh, Old Testament eschatology, eschatology within the context of the Old Testament. So I'm going to give you a few helpful hints, then we're going to give kind of an overview, (coughs) excuse me, an overview of Jewish eschatological expectation, and then we're going to kind of dive down a little bit more deeply into a few of those themes that we see as we we look at this uh, topic. So that's what we're going to do today, helpful hints, an overview of Jewish eschatological expectation, and then we're going to trace a few of those themes that we see there in the expectations in, uh, in greater detail. So that is it. So let's start with helpful hints for understanding Old Testament eschatology. Helpful hint for understanding Old Testament eschatology. The first one that you need to know is that what the Old Testament actually says and what Old Testament Jews believed are not always the same. In other words, how early Jews read and understood the Old Testament is often, often different from what the authors and God originally meant. And uh, so let me give you an example of this. Uh, when you're reading the New Testament, you realize that the, uh, the Sadducees, which were a particular sect within first century uh, Israel, the Sadducees did not believe in, in the resurrection. Are we having mic issues? Okay. Well, he's figuring that out. I'll keep going. So we realize the Sadducees, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have the Zealots, all these different sects within uh, first century Israel, and you realize the Sadducees don't actually believe in uh, the resurrection. They don't believe in angels, they don't believe in demons, those kinds of things uh, either. Now, is the resurrection in the Old Testament? Yes, absolutely is. And so you see there an example where uh, there are a particular, there's a particular group of Old Testament uh, Jews who don't actually believe what the scripture says. And so sometimes 
what the Old Testament says and what Old Testament Jews uh, believed are not the same. And so some believed that the Messiah was going to be a military leader. Others believed that he was going to be a priest. Others believed that he was just going to be a great teacher or a prophet or something like that. So this is really important because any error that we see in Jewish eschatological expectation lies with the reader and not with the author, all right? And so the scripture is perfect, the scripture is clear, the scripture is inspired, the scripture is inerrant, all of those sorts of things. And so if first century Jews missed what the Old Testament says, that is entirely on first century Jews and not any sort of deficiency with the Old Testament. So what the Old Testament says and what Old Testament Jews believed are not always the same. The second hint for understanding Old Testament eschatology is that we have to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament is going to clarify for us the Old Testament. You'll see this language a lot in the book of uh, Colossians and in the book of Hebrews and in other places, is that the New Testament is going to, to use the imagery of the Old Testament as being a shadow. And so think of the difference between the shadow of something and the substance of something. And, uh, and so that's the imagery there. The, the uh, New Testament clarifies the Old Testament. Unfortunately, a lot of people read the Old Testament as if the New Testament is kind of extraneous, it's superfluous. And uh, so they don't actually interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament as they should. So let me give you an example of, of this. And so if you were to ask the question, reading the Old Testament, you were to ask the question, to whom were the promises of the Old Testament made? To whom were the promises of the Old Testament made? Well, the answer is obvious as you're reading the Old Testament. The answer is to Abraham and to his offspring. The problem is some people then don't use the New Testament to help us understand who are the offspring of Abraham. And so they dig their heels in and say there, there must be these future promises that God makes to the ethnic nation of Israel, forgetting the fact or disregarding the fact or ne neglecting the fact that uh, the, the New Testament has clarified who the offspring of Abraham are. Look at Galatians 3.16. It's in your notes there. This is a, a, a verse that we've mentioned a number of times in uh, our theological equipping classes. This is, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Great. But notice what it says. Next. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So the New Testament has just clarified on the basis of whether or not a, uh, a, a noun is plural or singular, it's just clarified who the offspring is. Who is the ultimate offspring of Abraham to whom the promises are made? It's not the nation of Israel, it's the person, the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. He is the offspring. He is the heir of all of the promises that were Made. And so imagine that you're, you need reading glasses in order to read. The New Testament is kind of like your reading glasses. You should never read the Old Testament apart from the reading glasses of the New Testament because that's going to clarify uh, for us. So eschatological confusion, a lot of eschatological confusion that people experience as they're dealing with or trying to interpret what's going on regarding end times uh, results when people disregard the way that the New Testament is going to treat the Old Testament. So read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Third, helpful hint, keep in mind the already and not yet uh, of, uh, of eschatology and also prophetic foreshortening. 
We talked about both of those phrases last week, so if you weren't here, go back and, uh, and listen to it. But as it relates to the already but not yet, we talked about the fact that there was this Jewish uh, expectation that you have kind of the, the present evil age, there's going to be this decisive act of God, and then you're going to have the kingdom of God, the age to come. That's how they viewed it. But we talked about the fact that instead what we see is this overlap. It's a Venn diagram. So we talked about Venn diagrams, talked about a lot of funny little uh, uh, staff things. And so imagine you're talking about uh, staff members and you have staff members who are in their 20s. And so you have Tim and then you have Jared. But then you also have a category of staff members who look like a Ken doll. Well, basically that's just Jared, right? Tim does, has never been confused for a Ken doll. And, uh, and so this is what we see here in regards to actual uh, expectation eschatologically that there is this overlap between the, the uh, present evil age and the age to come. We've already experienced a number of the things that uh, are supposed to happen in the end days, in the last times, including the resurrection. The resurrection has already occurred, for Jesus at least, and yet we still see the effects of sin and suffering and death and all of these sorts of things. So there's this overlap. That's the already but uh, not yet. And, uh, and so uh, bear in mind that reality that the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not been consummated. So the Old Testament is going to speak of exile. It's going to speak of return from exile. It's going to speak of the coming of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, the judgment of God's enemies, the inclusion of the Gentiles, and so forth. From our vantage point, from our vantage point, which is thousands of years after the Old Testament, some of those things have already happened. Some of those things are happening on an ongoing basis, and others are waiting for fulfillment but all are eschatological from an Old Testament perspective because uh, the uh, eschatology deals with the last days. And as we talked about last week, the last days is already here. That's the language of the, uh, the New Testament, that the kingdom of God is already among us. It's not merely some future reality. Again, it's already, but not yet. It's been inaugurated, but not uh, consummated. And so uh, that's already, but not yet. And you also have this idea of prophetic foreshortening uh, which talks about the fact that, uh, that some of the things that you see in Scripture is kind of like a mountain range, right? And so you're driving up to the Rockies, and as you look and you see these two peaks, and they look like they're almost overlapping. And then as you get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, you realize those peaks are actually separated by miles. That's what happens from the Old Testament perspective. It looks like these two events are happening simultaneously. It looks like the coming of the Messiah and the judgment of God's enemies happen at the exact same time. But what do we see historically? Well, the Messiah actually comes, but God's enemies still haven't been judged. And it's thousands of years later. And so there's this prophetic foreshortening. There's these three horizons of, of prophecy, if you will. You have the Old Testament era. You have the New Testament era with, uh, with Christ. And then you have the future. And sometimes those things are kind of lumped together. So you have to, to bear that reality in, uh, in mind as you're, you're looking at Old Testament eschatology. Next helpful hint, keep in mind, eschatology is woven throughout the Old Testament. In other words, we think, whenever you think of eschatology, what do you naturally think? What books of the Bible do you think to look in? You think Revelation, but in the Old Testament, what would you look at? You'd look at Ezekiel, you'd look at Daniel, you'd look at Isaiah, whatever it, uh, it might be. Well, eschatology is actually woven throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the book of Genesis. 
Genesis 3.15, we've uh, talked about this verse before. It's the Proto-Evangelion, the, uh, the very first sort of hints of the gospel, the promises that God makes that he will defeat the seed uh, of the serpent. So the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. That's an eschatological promise. That's a promise that God is going to do something in the future. The promises that were made to Abraham are eschatological. That, that from this one man, there would be a, a nation of nations, that there would be kings that would come forth from this man. The promises to David of a son to eternally rule and reign over Israel. The Psalms are full of eschatological hope. And then obviously, the prophetic literature uh, as well. The fifth helpful hint that you should know, speaking of prophets, is that most Old Testament prophecy is actually not eschatological. Most Old Testament prophecy is actually not eschatological. We think of prophecy, just the way that we tend to use the word, we tend to think of it as predicting the future. But really, if you look at it, only a small percentage actually accomplish that. Some think uh, about 10%. So of all of the prophetic literature within the Old Testament, uh, some would say it's 7 to 10% is actually dealing with eschatological events. The vast, the overwhelming majority of things that you read in the prophetic literature is actually about current uh, events. It's concerned with things that are actually happening within uh, history uh, there. The current king of Israel, the current king of Judah, the current people of Assyria or Edom or Egypt or whatever it, uh, it might be. And so you see, prophecy is not just concerned with predicting the future. It actually has these very uh, contemporaneous uh, current event sort of uh, roles. So it's, uh, it has multiple functions. It's to expose sin. It's to comfort God's people. It's to confront his enemies. It's to call to repentance. And then, yes, there is also this predictive element where it's going to predict uh, the future. And so most Old Testament prophecy, though, is not eschatological. So if you just simply go to Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel and you read every single verse there as if it's a promise about the future, you're going to miss the fact that the overwhelming majority is not actually about the future, but it's actually about things that were happening there uh, within uh, that, uh, that time period. Next, helpful hint for understanding Old Testament eschatology. You need to understand the role of prophetic idiom prophetic idiom. In other words, the Old Testament prophets spoke within the framework, they used particular terms that they were familiar with, and that made sense to their hearers. So as a result of that, the form in which uh, Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the New Covenant era are likely to be different from the Old Covenant form in which the prophecies themselves were originally given. You see that especially in regards to the way that uh, you see this expansion within the New Testament of Old Testament expectations. There's this expansive sort of uh, element. So we've talked about this again a number of times. And so think about how often in, uh, in the Old Testament there is this concern with the land of Israel, right? This land of Israel, and it's you know, a couple hundred square miles tops, right? It's not a very huge chunk of land. And then you read the New Testament and you realize that's not a huge concern. What is the concern of the New Testament? Not merely this couple hundred square miles, but what? The kingdom of God and the restoration of God's glory where? That the glory uh, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so you see this expansion. It's not that God's promises have been restricted. They've been expanded. What was seen, what was kind of in the, uh, the language in the Old uh, Testament 
of just the, the nation of Israel has been expanded to now include the entire earth. And so you see that uh, sort of expansion there. You see the same thing with life, right? The Old Testament hope is long life, that you would live a long life in the land. What's the New Testament hope? Is it long life? Eternal life, right? So you see an expansion. In the, in the Old Testament, it's very concerned with the temple, right? And yet within the New Testament, how do you see the temple imagery used? Jesus Christ is the temple, or the church is the temple, or indeed as you read the book of Revelation, the entire earth is the temple, because the temple is what? Where what and what dwell together? Where God and man dwell together. And in the, uh, the restored, the, the new heavens and the new earth, God and man will forever dwell together on the new earth. And so and in a sense, all of creation becomes uh, the temple. And so you have to understand this prophetic idiom. In other words, don't just read the Old Testament, see a reference to the temple, and think there has to be a restored temple. That's not the way that uh, the Old Testament uh, prophetic la- uh, language is working. Again, the Old Testament is using shadows. The New Testament is going to give us the substance uh, that is hinted at in those shadows. Seventh helpful hint, be aware of poetic and figurative aspects of Old Testament eschatology. So ask, asking this question, should we interpret the Bible Literally, if someone asks you the question, should we interpret the Bible literally, how would you answer? Hopefully you can answer something like yes and no. It depends on what you mean. If you mean by that, do I interpret it non-figuratively, that I don't allow for metaphor or analogy? That means that I think that Jesus is actually a door, like physically a door, or uh, as the Roman Catholics do, that I think that this, the, the, uh, the, the elements, the, the, the juice or, or the, the wine and the bread actually physically becomes the body of Christ or something like that? If that's what we mean, then no, we don't believe the Bible is uh, to be read literally. That's literally what the word literally uh, means, though. That's not what we mean. And so uh, we want to uh, recognize that. God is not literally a rock. God doesn't literally have a right hand, and so uh, we don't read the Bible literally as if it's non-figurative, as if there's no metaphor, as if there's no analogy, as if there's nothing uh, like that. And so instead, we want to read it through a kind of a grammatical, historical uh, way. In other words, we're going to determine the original literal as in literary meaning of the author. And So let me give you an example of this as it relates to eschatology. Look at Isaiah 65, 20. 6520. You see here prophetic idiom that we talked about before and then also this sort of figurative poetic aspect. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days for the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be uh, accursed. So this is poetic again for long life. The Old Testament uh, is speaking of long life. The New Testament is going to clarify that it means their eternal Life. And so all those examples of expansion that we talked about earlier, the land, the temple, life, etc., those all contain figurative uh, sort of poetic aspects. Eighth thing you should know is that Old Testament eschatology is about kingdom through covenant. Kingdom through covenant. That's the name of a, uh, a good book, by the way. Kingdom through covenant. Uh, it's about the rule and reign of Yahweh. And so we'll talk about this as we go along, that eschatology really is about the kingdom of God, which comes about through the covenants that God makes with man. God makes certain covenants with man, 
And, uh, and therefore, those covenants ultimately result in the coming of the kingdom of God. And so we're not going to go into detail about it now because that we'll come back to that and spend a lot of time uh, on that in the back end. Ninth point, two more points. The Old Testament is more concerned with general eschatology than it is with personal eschatology. When I say general eschatology, I mean things like the, the, uh, the, the fate or whatever it might be of uh, national uh, Israel, of, uh, of the corporate eschatology, the world, creation, these sorts of things, versus personal eschatology, which is just what happens to me after I die. And so the, the, the Old Testament is much more concerned with general eschatology than it is with personal eschatology. You do see in there certain hints about what happens to us after we die, but that's not the main concern. So there are hints of resurrection, but you shouldn't read the Old Testament as if that's the primary concern. Now, that's something that we see much clearer within the context of the, uh, the, the New Testament, which is why, as we talked about the Sadducees and so forth, missed uh, it within the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is more concerned with general eschatology, national corporate eschatology, dealing with Israel, dealing with the world, dealing with creation, than it is with personal eschatology, like what happens to us after death or whatever it might be. And then the last thing is that eschatology is progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament. This is another thing that people often miss, and it can, be, it can result in a whole lot of confusion for them if they miss this point that eschatology is progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament, that God didn't choose to give the sort of full eschatological hope, the full eschatological expectation to Abraham. He gives a bit to Abraham, and then he gives more, let's say, to Moses, and then he gives more, let's say, through David, and then he gives more, let's say, through Isaiah and the other prophets, and then each individual prophet is going to add something uh, unique. So God's eternal eschatological purposes do not change from Abraham to Malachi, but Israel's insight into those purposes becomes progressively clearer and clearer and clearer. It's kind of like the difference between just flipping on a light and having a dimmer. The Old Testament in, in regards to progressive revelation is kind of like a dimmer. Things are getting progressively clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer, and, uh, and so we need to read the Old Testament through uh, that lens. There is an importance to reading it chronologically and understanding that what God reveals at different times is going to build upon what He has already previously uh, revealed. So those are a few helpful hints, things you need to know about Old Testament eschatology as you're diving in. But let's actually get into some eschatological hope and expectation. We're going to talk about a general outline, and then we're going to dive down into four topics or themes that emerge within the uh, overview. So, a general outline of, uh, of Old Testament eschatological expectation and hope. And in order to really understand that outline, in order to understand what the eschatological expectation uh, is, you need to understand the significance of two events in particular. The first one being creation, and the second one being fall. All right? So, creation uh, in regards to God creating the world. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What you're seeing in the outworking of the Old Testament, uh, in fact, in the outworking of the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the fact that God's plans will not be thwarted. God had a reason for creating the earth, and those plans are not going to be thwarted. He has not abandoned, nor will He abandon, His desire and design for a people 
and for a world for the praise of his name. And so we begin with uh, creation, which not only is going to show us there is this original design, desire for God, this purpose and plan that God has uh, to redeem uh, the world for, uh, for his praise, but this also is going to imply God's kingdom and God's sovereignty, his rule and reign and authority over all people and all nations and all events. <clears throat> and so eschatology is ultimately about the kingdom because the gospel is about the kingdom. All right? So eschatology is about the kingdom because eschatology is about the gospel and the gospel is about the kingdom. So eschatology is basically about uh, the story of how God prepared the world for this and how he fulfilled and is fulfilling the promises that he has made. So you have creation, but then you have the fall. You can't understand eschatology without understanding the fall, which explains why things are the way that they are. Why there's death, why there's suffering, why there is uh, condemnation, why there is all of these sorts of things, why there's sickness and, uh, and so forth, demonic oppression, all of these sorts of things. The fall explains why things are the way that they are. So eschatology is concerned with how things should be and how things will be. So you see there are a contrast between the fall and eschatology. The, es- uh, the fall is about why things are the way they are Eschatology is about how things should be and how they will ultimately be made to be like they should be. And so you see even the first eschatological promise, we talked about this before, is right there in the context of the fall. Genesis 3, 15. Immediately thereafter, the man and the woman have eaten of the fruit and God begins to speak these curses over his creation. There is this promise embedded right in the middle of a curse. God gives a promise Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is uh, speaking to the, uh, the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was actually our text that we looked at for, uh, for Christmas Eve uh, this past week, or uh, this past year, sorry. So eschatology is ultimately concerned with that promise. How will uh, the enemy be thwarted? How will God's creation be uh, renewed? How will God's people be put back into Eden? And as you see through the lens of the New Testament, it's actually something that's better uh, than Eden, um, but uh, that's the New Testament. So those are the sort of the, the, the premises in order to understand these eschatological expectations. And so let me give you uh, these, how many did I have? Seven, eight, seven. All right, it's a good eschatological number. Seven. First, uh, eschatological expectation. You're reading the Old Testament. What are are the eschatological expectations? Again, eschatological just means relating to the end or the last days or something uh, like that. The first one would be that Israel would undergo exile and oppression and persecution and false teaching and deception and apostasy. In general, what you're going to see is pre-exilic prophecy. That is uh, prophecy that, that happens before the exile the exile of the northern kingdom, the exile of the southern kingdom. You have the northern kingdom, which is exiled to Assyria. You have the southern kingdom, which is exiled to Babylon. Uh, in general, pre-exilic prophecy is concerned with judgment and exile. That is the main sort of thrust of, uh, of pre-exilic prophecy is the fact that there's going to be exile, whereas post-exilic prophecy is more concerned with deliverance, that God is going to regather the nation, and uh, there's going to be deliverance and, uh, and so forth. So that's the first thing, though. Israel would undergo exile, oppression, persecution, and so forth. 
Second eschatological expectation that we see in the Old Testament is that after the tribulation, Israel would seek the Lord and be delivered while their enemies would be judged. After the tribulation, Israel would seek the Lord and be delivered while their enemies would be judged. By the way, we put some scripture references there. These are not exhaustive, but just a few places that you can look and see some of these ideas. Now, you also see hints that Israel doesn't necessarily mean God's uh, people and, uh, and God's enemies doesn't necessarily mean Gentiles. So again, using this sort of Venn diagram sort of idea, uh, when it comes to you have uh, God's people, you have Israel, and then if you're looking at uh, God's people, you'll see some of those are Israelites, but you actually see an expansion, and so it also includes some Gentiles. And so God's people actually is going to include both Israel and so some Gentiles aren't God's enemies and some uh, Israelites aren't God's people is uh, kind of what you're seeing uh, there. Number three, this deliverance and judgment will occur because a leader, the Messiah, will finally conquer all of its uh, enemies. We'll talk about the Messiah uh, in a bit. Number four, some of Israel's Gentile enemies will experience deliverance during these eschatological days. We talked about that uh, already. Uh, Some Gentiles aren't enemies. Some Israelites aren't God's people. Number five, the saints of Israel will be raised from the dead. You see the hope there of resurrection. Number six, God will establish a new covenant with Israel. Uh, In that new covenant, the Spirit will be given in a distinct manner, according to Joel 2. By the way, the nature of this new covenant and how this new covenant interacts with the various old covenants that you see, the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and so forth, all of these old covenants, the way that the new covenant that is uh, inaugurated in, uh, in Jesus Christ, the way that that covenant relates and interacts with the old covenants uh, is, uh, is also going to be different, uh, different as well. In fact, the, the differences that you see in uh, in theological controversy are, also, uh, are often related to the fact that there is this difference, this fundamental difference between the new covenant and the various uh, older covenants. And so the differences between dispensationalists, if you ever heard that term, uh, it's not important for now if you haven't, but dispensationalists and covenantalists comes down to how do we, uh, how do we think that the covenants relate. The difference between paedobaptists, that is those who would baptize infants, versus credo-baptists, that is those who would baptize only people who give a profession of faith, is related to how are those covenants related. In fact, most theological controversy probably relates to the question of how does the new covenant relate to older covenants. And the seventh sort of eschatological expectation is that God will establish a kingdom on the earth and he will rule over it together with a Davidic king. God will establish a kingdom on the earth and rule over it together with a Davidic uh, king. So that was kind of a general overview of Old Testament eschatological expectation. I want to take four of those hopes in particular and spend the rest of our time uh, on those in greater detail. So certain themes that you see within the Old Testament as it relates to eschatology. The first one, the most important by far, is, uh, is the, um, uh, the, the prophecy, the eschatological expectation of a Messiah. What does the word Messiah mean? 
Well, in Hebrew, it's uh, related to the Hebrew word Mashiach, all right, Mashiach, which means one who is anointed, right? And in the Old Testament, who would you anoint? You would anoint a prophet, you would, really, you would anoint a priest, and then you would also anoint a king, all right? And so Samuel goes and he anoints Saul to be king. Samuel goes and he anoints David uh, to be king. And, uh, and so that's kind of uh, the, uh, the, the imagery there. And so it's one who is anointed. In Greek, the, uh, the Greek word is Christos, from which we get the English word Christ, right? So Messiah and Christ actually mean the same thing. And so if you ever wonder uh, about that, they actually mean the same thing. Hebrew Mashiach, Greek Christos, both of those just mean uh, um, anointed. And so one who is anointed as a leader, king over God's uh, people. Sorry about the uh, audio issues, but I'll just kind of yell at, at times if it goes out. So the concept of the Messiah saturates the Old Testament. What's interesting, though, is that the Word doesn't. It's kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like Trinity within the context of the New Testament. The Trinity, the triune nature of God, is one of the most fundamental aspects of New Testament theology, and yet how many times is that word actually used in the New Testament? Zero, right? It is probably the most important theological principle of the New Testament, and yet the actual word is not used uh, at all, but the concept is. Likewise, when it comes to Mashiach in the Old that word is not as common, but the concept saturates the entire New Testament. That said, it does occur within the context of the Old Testament. Daniel 9, 25 through 26 is an example of that. There's a number of other ones, but know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, Mashiach, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again and with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after that, 62 weeks, an anointed one, again, Mashiach, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and uh, to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. So the word Mashiach or the word Messiah isn't dominant within the Old Testament, but the concept of some future king, of some deliverer, of some prophet, of some priest, of some king, of some leader certainly is. He's elsewhere called the servant of the Lord. That's another term for the Messiah. He's called the rod of Jesse. He's called the root or stump of David and, uh, and so forth. And so again, you get the first whispers of that in the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there's going to be an offspring, a seed, a descendant of the woman who would come and crush the head of the, uh, the serpent. And so some offspring will defeat the serpent, the enemy, the accuser. And you get the progressive clarification about who that person is as, you are, uh, as you're reading the Old Testament. You ever play the game Guess Who? You ever played that? It's kind of, a, kind of a board game. It's got kind of a board, I guess. Uh, you have like 20 people to choose from on your side, and then the other person has 20 people, and they're the same people on each side. And you're trying to guess which one your opponent has chosen. Some have hair. Some don't. Some have hats. Some have glasses. Some have beards. And so you systematically, you ask, does your person have a hat? And if so, then you put down everyone who doesn't have a hat and so forth. And your goal is to cross people off the list by asking these, the, the, them these various uh, questions. So the Old Testament is kind of like that when it comes to the concept of the Messiah. 
So you ask the question, is he descended from Abraham? And the, the answer is yes, he is. So you mark off everybody who's not descended from Abraham. Genesis 22, 17 through 18 is a promise that says the Messiah is going to come through Abraham. Okay, well, Abraham has a son. His, that son's name is Ishmael. So you ask the question, well, is he descended from Ishmael? The answer is no, he's not descended from Ishmael. He's descended from the other son, Isaac. And Abraham said to God, Genesis 17, 18 through 19, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then Isaac has a couple of kids, Esau and Jacob. So does the promise, does the, the Messiah come from Esau? No, he doesn't come from Esau. He comes from Jacob. And then you do the same with all of Jacob's kids, right? Jacob has how many sons? Twelve, right? That's where we get the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob is Israel. His name is changed uh, to Israel. And so uh, you ask the question, is he descended from Reuben? No. Simeon? No. Levi? No. Zebulun? No. I'm going to quit because I'm going to forget some of the names. <laughs> Judah? Yes. He is descended from Judah. And then you have the same with the, the, the Davidic line. Descended from uh, Saul, Saul's reign, but instead David. And then you have various details about the Messiah, that he's born in Bethlehem, that he's born of a virgin, that he's from Galilee, that he comes from Egypt, even the approximate date of his first uh, coming. And so you have this, this expectation, this messianic expectation that someone would deliver God's people and rule over them and purify them and defeat their enemies. But what's really interesting <clears throat> is that you're going to see these various shadows that are going to be interwoven together, that the Messiah is this multifaceted sort of reality. Again, it's uh, shadows. There's various pictures. There's various perspectives. That he's a prophet like Moses. You see that in Deuteronomy 18, that there's going to be another prophet like Moses. He's also a king like David, but he also restores the worship of Israel. So there's kind of a priestly image as well. These are all uh, shadows that the New Testament clarifies. There's also these weird strains that you get that it seems like he's a military leader, but it also seems like in Isaiah 53 that he dies. He's the suffering servant. So you have these strands that are woven together mysteriously. And then you see that uh, he's the son of David, but maybe he's also more than the son of David, more than a mere mortal, more than a uh, man. And so Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And so you see it's a Davidic king uh, who's going to rule over the people. But Zechariah says the Lord himself will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So you see here, he is the son of David, but he's more than that. As Psalm 110 says, which is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament and all the New Testament, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? And so this is David speaking of his own son. I don't know about you, but not many of us would call our sons Lord. Right? And yet this is David speaking of his Lord, his son, as if he is the Lord. He's more than just the Davidic king, which is why in Isaiah 9 you have all of this sort of glorious language. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on its shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you have the, the, uh, the prophetic expectation, the eschatological expectation of a Messiah. Some of the things that the Messiah is going to do, we've seen, are, have already been accomplished. He's already died for the sins of the people. He's already been resurrected. But there's other things that are yet to, uh, to come. Again, there's this prophetic foreshortening uh, that takes place. Another dominant theme within the Old Testament is the eschatological expectation of the day of the Lord, judgment of God's enemies, which refers to the expectation that God would deliver Israel and destroy their enemies. So it's originally thought to be this day of rejoicing for Israel, this day when God would vindicate Israel. So there was a day of rejoicing until the prophets begin to point out that many of the Israelites themselves are not humble or contrite, and thus they're constituted as uh, enemies. So there's all kinds of imagery that's associated with the day uh, of the Lord. There's darkness, there's fire, there's war. And there seems to be various days of the Lord, in a sense, that you'll see. There are uh, three horizons. So occasionally in the Old Testament, you'll see the phrase day of the Lord referring to something that God has already done, a past act. So uh, whenever he has already destroyed Edom or whenever he's already destroyed the Chaldeans or whoever it is, uh, that there's this sort of past element to the day of the Lord. There's also this uh, present, imminent, impending aspect is when Israel is going to be exiled uh, at, at times within a few years of when the, uh, the prophecy is spoken. But there's also this sense in which there is this ultimate eschatological expectation for some future day of full judgment of God's enemies. And so let's read a few passages just to get a taste of this expectation and, uh, and how dominant this is throughout the Old Testament. Amos chapter 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You see that as kind of, a, a, again, confronting Israel because they're rejoicing. They're celebrating. They're saying, come, we want the day of the Lord to come. And Amos is going to point out, no, some of you don't want the day of the Lord to come because you yourself will find that you're not on the right side in that day. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Uh, why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Or Isaiah 2.11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Zephaniah 1.14-16, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Joel 2, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will ever be again after them through the years of all generations. And then Zechariah chapter 12, 1 through 6. Notice here as we go the, the, the refrain on that day, on that day. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel 
Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall be again inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. By the way, if you were to keep reading and read verse 8, in verse 9, in verse 11, in the next chapter, 13.1, 13.2, 13.4, you would see again, on that day, on that day, on that day. So that is one of the main themes uh, that you see in Old Testament eschatological expectation. And to some degree, we haven't seen the, the ultimate fulfillment of that. There have been times when God has judged his enemies. There have been uh, empires that have been brought down and so forth. You see that with Babylon. You see that with Assyria. You see that with Rome and uh, on and on uh, you can go. But there is this ultimate eschatological expectation that hasn't yet been uh, fulfilled. A next theme that you see in the, uh, the Old Testament that's not as dominant within the context of the Old Testament, but I think from a New Testament perspective is very important that we understand is the eschatological expectation of the blessing of the Gentiles. We've talked about this a number of times before. Some people read the Bible as if the storyline of the Bible is God loves Israel, God loves Israel, God loves Israel, God loves Israel, God tolerates the Gentiles with parentheses for a season, and then it's all about Israel. Israel, Israel, Israel. That's not the way that we read the Bible. The Bible is about the world, the world, the world, the world, the world. Israel, parentheses, world, world, right? When does Abraham appear in the Bible? Is it Genesis 1? No, it's Genesis 12. You have 11 chapters before Israel even exists. So God's heart is always for the redemption of the world that he created, not just for uh, Israel. So there's always this hope embedded, even within the Old Testament, of the inclusion of Gentiles. You always see hints of God's universal design. In fact, from the very first blessing of Abraham, the very first appearance to Abraham, the very first promise made to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham first appears, now the Lord said to Abram, before his name is even Abraham, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, leave your paganism in Ur of the Chaldeans, leave your moon worshiping, go from your country, go from your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And look at this, embedded right there in the very first promise made to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Psalm 2.8, you see this, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's a prophetic expectation for the Messiah, that the Messiah would ask, the Davidic king would ask, the Son of God would ask and say, I want the nations. The inheritance of Jesus Christ is not merely Israel. The inheritance of Jesus Christ is the world. 
all of the nations of the world. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Or Psalm 72, 8 through 11, may he have dominion from sea to sea. And that's not just Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea. From the river to the ends of the earth, may desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And so you see this constant refrain, uh, if, uh, especially if you're reading this, already aware of this eschatological expectation that God would bless the Gentiles. For whatever reason, this is, again, one of those dominant themes in the Old, Testaments, uh, in the Old Testament that's just missed by people reading the Old Testament, that God's universal design saturates the Old Testament, and yet it's easy for us to, uh, to miss it. And then lastly, uh, the other dominant theme that I want to mention is, is the eschatological expectation of peace or a new creation. Within uh, prophetic literature in, uh, in particular, again, not all prophetic literature is eschatological and not all eschatology takes place in prophetic literature, but within the context of prophetic literature in particular, there is this eschatological expectation for a fundamentally different sort of cosmic and social order one in which the experience of time and natural order and social existence, religious affiliation, even Yahweh's lordship will be of a fundamentally different sort from that which existed earlier. There will be shalom. There will be peace. In other words, there's this eschatological expectation that what goes wrong in Genesis 3 will be made right, that all the effects of the curse will be uh, reversed. And so there's a number of passages that we could read for the sake uh, of time. I'll just, uh, I'll just read uh, one of them. Uh, that is the Isaiah 11 passage, but uh, you can go back and read Isaiah 35 and 42, which is in your notes. But Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So who's this talking about? The Messiah, right? The Mashiach, the, the Christ Jesus. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So there's no partiality. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. By the way, it's really interesting. Whenever you read the book of Revelation, there's a sword that's coming from what? From his mouth, right? And so he strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. So you see uh, here that you can't understand New Testament eschatology without understanding Old Testament imagery and eschatology. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So again, the expectation is that there's going to be some sort of cosmic restoration this recreation, this renewal in which the effects of the curse are reversed and God's original purposes and plans and desires for His glory and the joy of His people will be 
fulfilled. So that's kind of Old Testament eschatology, just an introduction to it. Next week, again, we'll deal with intertestamental eschatology, dealing with what is the sort of uh, Jewish expectation uh, as uh, they are reflecting in this 400 years of prophetic silence, as they're reflecting back on the Old Testament, as there's new writings that are coming forth, what are the expectations? Uh, And then we'll begin to look at Revelation and begin to tackle some of the more controversial things like rapture, tribulation, millennium, those kinds of things. But first, let's do a little Q&A. Hopefully you'll ask the question, why did my mic keep going out? And then you'll answer we know, it. We know why. Great. Can you all hear me? There it is. Okay, so uh, welcome to Parkway. We sometimes have auditory issues. If you happen to be a billionaire and want to fix that, we will not turn you down. Okay, uh, a few things. First of all, a quick announcement. If, uh, make sure that if you're serving with preschool that you leave here at 10. If you have kids that are in elementary school though and they're getting equipped right now, please do not go take them out of the class until 10.15. Did I get that right, Carl? Let them finish their lesson uh, before, you, uh, uh, before you pull them out. Okay, a few questions on this. Some of these questions are great, but we have to wait. Uh, so we don't steal our own thunder because they're, uh, they're about things that are coming. These first three lessons are really kind of to set the stage. Intro to eschatology, eschatology in the Old Testament, and then apocalyptic literature next week. We have to give you that before we jump into things like Revelation or else it won't make sense. So anyway, here's the first question. Question the first from you, the Parkway Church. Many of the examples of Old Testament eschatology seem like a verse here, a verse there. When reading, how do we know when the text is eschatological? I think that's a great question. So I'll I'll give you a few tips. First of all, uh, we have a lesson on the different genres of Scripture and how to read them uh, that we have available online from a previous theological equipping we've done. I would encourage you to check that out. But a few things to look for. One, if the imagery seems really hyperbolic, it seems really crazy, the moon turns to blood and the stars fall from the sky and these kind of things, that's typically an indicator that you're getting into uh, prophetic things. Uh, If it ever talks about the future, right? So the prophets will be like condemning Israel and then instantly they'll talk about a time where the Egyptians and the Syrians are going to come and worship God and everything's going to be great. When it sounds too good to be true, that's typically an indicator that you're getting into eschatology and uh, and the end times. Uh, When it has to do with some of these themes that Jeff mentioned, that's typically an indicator that you're getting into prophecy or the end times. So it talks about Gentiles coming into the faith. It talks about the spirit being given, like in Joel 2. It talks about a Messiah coming. It talks about something related to David and his offspring. Uh, These kind of things are typically some hints that you're getting into prophecy. Here's a good way to think of it. When you're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a mix of history and then some figurative imagery. So Jesus goes into a town and teaches. That's literal. We don't have to say, what does the town represent? It's just the town. But then when he teaches, he says things like, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And you realize, okay, well, that's hyperbolic language. A lot of prophecy is like that. You're reading just kind of normal text, and then there's a shift in the tone, and that's typically a good way that you can pick up that sometimes it is talking about eschatology. Other thoughts on that, Jeffrey? Um, yeah, I mean, if, it's, if it concerns anything that is apocalyptic, and so we'll talk about apocalyptic uh, literature, which is a distinct type of uh, prophetic literature that tends to be marked by uh, just this really intense, as, as he was saying, almost hyperbolic uh, symbolism, uh, and, uh, and so that tends to be eschatological. If it's a promise that finds its ultimate fulfillment within the context of uh, the, the Messiah, 
that is going to be uh, eschatological. But uh, it's, it's, uh, if you're reading the Old Testament and you notice that uh, there are these elements that we talked about in the helpful hints, there's these poetic elements, there's these figurative elements and whatever uh, it might be, and there's not a very clear uh, uh, current event that that's referring to, then there is probably an expectation that it is eschatological in, in nature. Okay, uh, next. What was the purpose of the prophecy to Israel about its shortcomings, i.e. oppression, persecution, false teachers, deception, and apostasy? So on, on the notes, one of the uh, marks uh, of Old Testament eschatology is really Israel's failings. Uh, do you want to start with that one? Uh, sure, yeah. So, uh, I mean, recognizing m- most prophetic literature is not just given just to say you're going to be judged and there's nothing you can do about it. The purpose, is, it's like in the book of Jonah. There is this expectation, although God doesn't say it, he says in 40 days uh, Nineveh will be overthrown. For those of you who weren't here, we, we just preached through, uh, uh, through the book of Jonah a couple of months ago. And, uh, and so there's this expectation, although God doesn't say it, but if you repent, there will be mercy. That's the hope. That's the expectation. And so for Israel, whenever there is this, uh, this concern that there's going to be exile, that there's going to be oppression, that there's going to be all of these sorts of things, uh, I think it, 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 uh, it kind of has a, a multifaceted, but one of the main a- aspects of that is to call the nation to repentance. If not the, the nation, to call individual Israelites. There's always a remnant within Israel to call them to repentance and to recognize that uh, there should be this desire, like the Ninevites, as they repent in dust and, and sackcloth and ashes and so forth, that uh, that should have been the heart of Israel, that they should have been contrite, that they should have been humble, that they should have uh, done these sorts of things. And so you see that a number of times, even with uh, wicked kings in Israel. You see a couple of examples where wicked kings even would repent Temporarily, it's not this ultimate sort of act of being regenerated or something like that, but they would experience this temporary sense of attrition, at least, and they would repent and God would relent and, and so forth. So I think that's probably the main aspect, but there is also uh, an aspect in which it accomplishes the purposes and plans, which is to reveal to Israel that uh, Israel is not God's sort of heartbeat, that his heartbeat is for all the nations, and Israel is the means by which God is going to accomplish that. And uh, so. And, and uh, I would add to that, because the question has to do with why is there this constant prophecy that Israel is going to completely fail? They're going to be exiled. They're going to mess it up. Let me give you a, uh, a big theological bombshell that I, that I hope that you find to be helpful. God has not given us rules for us to keep them. We, we have a tendency to think that if we give rules, that will protect people from sin. Isn't that what we think? If we give people a bunch of rules, that will protect people from sin. There's a famous phrase in the Reformation from Luther, which is uh, lex semper accusat, the law always accuses. The New Testament says the reason God has given us his law is to show us that we could not keep it. Rules don't keep you from sin. If, my son, if I say to my son, don't touch that hot stove, he now wants to. He didn't even want to until I gave him the rule. Rather, God's law is given to show us that we cannot keep it. Be perfect as I am perfect. Keep these holy days. Don't eat this food. Offer these sacrifices. Do not lust after someone who's not your spouse. Da-da-da-da-da. All these commands to show us that we cannot keep it. And so God wants Israel to fail in a sense, just like he wants us to fail in a sense, so that we might pine for the Messiah. When you realize that God has given us hundreds of commands that we break, all of a sudden you realize, I'm toast. 
I need a Savior. I need a Messiah. It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And so I think one of the big reasons that this is given in the Old Testament about Israel's failure is because we think that rules keep us from sin. The Bible's going to say that rules increase the sinfulness of sin, and it makes you realize that you need a Messiah. If the Jews, who were delivered out of Egypt, who got to see Moses, who got to do all these cool things, rebelled against God, you and I are certainly going to, which is why we need a Messiah. The way I keep my son from touching the stove is to say, you don't need to touch the stove. It will hurt you. But even if you touch it, I still love you and I'm still your dad. He needs grace. Grace is what enables you to actually follow God's commands. So anyway, next, mini sermon over. Next, is this tribulation of Israel spiritual or physical? Has it happened or will it happen? Is this the same tribulation in Revelation? (gasps) You got to wait because we have an entire class on the tribulation. Okay, an entire class on the tribulation. Is that something for Israel? Is that something for the church? Uh, Is that just a general time period? From the coming of Christ until today, Christians have been persecuted. Is that the tribulation? You're going to have to wait to see. We have a whole lesson on the tribulation, so I don't think that we can answer that one today unless you want to say something spicy about it. A little teaser trailer. Okay. Uh, I think we are about out of time. Again, if we did not get to your question, please send us an email. We are happy to, uh, uh, to answer that question via email. The, the next question I got, someone had mentioned, was about the day of the Lord. Has that already occurred? Was that in 70 AD? Again, you have to wait. So this is how we keep you coming back. Okay? It's like the end of a, an old Batman episode or something. Like, next time at the Parkway Church, when will Christ come back? Whatever it is. And so uh, that's to keep you coming back as well. Jeff, you want to pray for us? Sure. All right. Father, thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for um, just the opportunity that we have to study it. I pray that you would help us to be better interpreters of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, uh, of the eschatological promises that you have made to us and, uh, and how they are all fulfilled and uh, accomplished in your Son, that all of the promises uh, that you have made uh, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that our hope would rest more fully in, uh, in him, that we would see uh, his glory and his goodness and, uh, and his beauty, and uh, that that might cause our hearts to worship. Pray for us as we go forth from here that, um, that our hearts would be prepared to sing, our hearts would be prepared to hear your word and uh, to gather with other believers and to be encouraged and to encourage others and, uh, and just to be discipled. And so that's our purpose for gathering today, to glorify you and to experience joy as you transform us into the image of your Son. And so we pray these things because you're a good Father who gives good gifts. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.